Well, here we go, the beginning of our journey through the book of Philippians, which, despite being only four chapters long, I am planning on spreading out over four years. Uh, as per the Chris Lance tradition, that's half a verse every week till we're done. Actually, it should only take us a few months. Not that we're rushing, because Philippians is one of the greatest books in the entire Bible to me. If you were to ask me, it's definitely one of my favorites. I'm really excited to study it in depth again. It's been 13 years since I last preached from Philippians, which sounds kind of crazy to me until you do the math and realize that that was only four sermon series ago. Um, just kidding. But seriously, the epistle to the Philippians is a true powerhouse of a letter. Here's just a small sampling, just a small sampling of a few of the eminently quotable sayings from the book of Philippians. So this is just some that I, I thought would be familiar. Even if you've only read Philippians once or not at all, you still probably have heard these sayings. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I said that over and over as we were studying Paul. That was his philosophy. That was his mindset. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Or your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And that's the first phrase in this long, beautiful poem, possibly a hymn. Um, that, that Paul records in Philippians, and it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. I think there's a song about that, Donna. Yeah. Um, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That I thought that was in John. It's in Philippians. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. It's in Philippians. Whatever is noble, this is a pretty famous passage, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, which, by the way, is one of the most dangerously misinterpreted verses in the New Testament, as well as this last one, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful verse that people have twisted to make all about God wants me to be wealthy. No, God does not. Some people he wants to be wealthy, but that is not what that verse is about. The glorious riches of Christ Jesus have nothing to do with money. But it's a beautiful verse and we'll study it. And that's just the beginning. There is a wealth of truth in Philippians that is unique among all of Paul's letters. A lot of what we find in Philippians can only be found in Philippians. Um, It's going to be a wonderful study. For this morning, I thought I'd set us up with an introduction to the letter using the five W's of journalism, who, what, where, when, and why, to examine our purposes for the next few months. Let's begin with who, when, and where, three questions which are fairly easily answered from the perspective of who, when, and where wrote the thing. Where was it written? When was it written? Actually, I answered those questions just last week. We looked at the lost last years of Paul, and all of these answers were there. So you may be very likely able to answer these questions yourself. And so, for 100 points, who wrote the book of Philippians? Hands up, people. You know how this works. Trish. Paul. That's right. Paul the Apostle. Scholars are nearly unanimous that it was Paul who wrote this, which is unique among the letters of Paul. Lots of scholars think that many of the letters of Paul, maybe Paul wrote parts of it and then others added to it, but the The scholarly debate around who wrote the letters of Paul is not unanimous, but it's almost all unanimous that Paul wrote this book. Some think it was three different letters combined. I think that's nonsense. I'm not even going to validate it with with an argument. Okay, for 250 points, where was Paul 
most likely located when he dictated the letter. Because he didn't write it, he dictated it most likely to Luke. Where was he when he did so? Hands, people! Dennis! In Rome. Yeah, under house arrest. I heard people say prison. That's fairly accurate. He was under house arrest in Rome. Scholars think, some think maybe he wrote it from Caesarea. Remember Caesarea was when he was um, beaten to a pulp in Jerusalem and was arrested. They took him at night to Caesarea and he kind of waited there for two years, I think, until he was shipped off to Rome. So some think he wrote it from there. Um, some think that maybe he wrote it when he was in pref- prison in Ephesus. But based on some internal evidence in the letter, he mentions the effect of the gospel on the Praetorian guards. The Praetorian guards were the, the bodyguards of the emperor. So they lived and trained mostly in Rome. And also there's a really cool passage at the, at the end where he says the gospel has gone out to the household of Caesar himself. And that, that word household is oikos, which if you eat yogurt, you may be familiar with that word. And the household of Caesar is not a metaphor. The household of Caesar is literally there were people from Caesar's household who were becoming Christians and Caesar lived in Rome. So it was most likely written in Rome when he was under house arrest. Um, so Dennis has 250. Trish has 100 points. For 500 points, the hardest of the three easy questions. <laughs> when was Philippians most likely written? When was it most likely written? Roughly what year? Oh, yes. I'll give, You didn't put your hand up, Dale. Yes, Dale. 61, around 61. Did you look in your Bible? Did you look? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll allow it because that's crafty. <laughs> yeah, that, that's 500 points are at stake, so I don't blame you at all. Um, Paul was under house arrest from around 60 to around 62 AD, and this book is most likely written at the end of that time because he mentions the impact among the guards. And he seems, uh, he mentions to the Philippians in the letter that it seems like he's ready to be released, that he'll be released soon. So towards the end of his stay, so 61 or 62 AD. Dale wins 500 points means he's the winner. Those are that's essentially just trivia questions, which is why I treat it, it like a trivia game. There, they don't really matter a whole lot when, who, or where it was written. Um, I mean, knowing Paul as we do, there's some special things that come out that come to life. But if we look at who, where, and when from the perspective not of the author but of the intended audience, I think the letter starts to come to life a little more. So who can be who is the letter written to? Where can lead us to questions about the city of Philippi, the city that this letter was written to? And when can fill out some historical context that brings the book to life, I think. So the city of Philippi, here it is, emphasized in red. The city of Philippi was founded by a bunch of Greek dudes in 360 BC and was taken over by Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great's dad, four years later, so 356 BC. Alex's papa then named the city after himself. Any guess what Alex's, Alexander the Great's dad's name was? Philip, good job. Uh, should have uh, given points for that. I'll give you 50 points. 50 points. Philip of Macedon was Alexander the Great's dad, and so he founded the city and named it after himself. The reason Philip wanted this city was because it was, uh, every city you founded in those days, you wanted it to have some some fortitude, some uh, not easily conquerable. So Philippi is in the mountains, but in the mountains um, towards this great eastern plain, and that plain was really rich and fertile for agriculture. 
So there is potential for a lot of wealth to the city. Also, the mountains around Philippi were rich with minerals, including gold. So Alexander wanted that, so he took that. Alexander's dad, sorry, Philip. For all these reasons, when Rome conquered the city in 168 BC, they made it an important part of their massive empire. It was Philippi was this important trading route on the east-west, the major, the Ignatian way it was called. Um, and Philippi was an important hub of that trading route. Um, so if you were trading with the provinces like Galatia or Asia Minor or as far as Judea, where Jesus was, you would, on to and from Rome, you would go through Philippi. It was a really important place. The city was claimed for Rome by a guy named Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, and he made a brilliant political decision. He populated Philippi after the battle and after the Romans won the battle, he populated Philippi in the area around it with military veterans, Roman military veterans. And then he blessed that area, because not every place Rome conquered was blessed in this way. He blessed them by making them official citizens of Rome. So everyone who lived in Philippi was a citizen of Rome. And to be a citizen of Rome, as we've seen as we've studied Paul, there were tremendous rewards for that. You had rights that nobody else in the empire had. And everyone in Philippi was given those rights immediately, which was this brilliant move because not only was it now defended by the mountains and by these military veterans, but the people themselves were now invested in Rome because they were made citizens. And so they were in, invested in, in, in the city, in the empire. And so there was, it, it was this huge act of grace and kindness by the emperor to the people of Philippi. It was really shrewd politically. But the people saw it as an act of grace, and they responded as such. Before long, the Philippians began worshiping the emperor as a god in a way that was not common throughout the empire. Everyone feared and respected the emperor, but in Philippi particularly, and the cities around Macedonia, the Caesar was a god. He was worshipped and deified as a god. So remember that. That'll come into play a little bit later today. Fast forward 200 years to around 49 AD, 49 AD. Perhaps due to its climate of emperor worship or perhaps due to a lack of men, the female Jews of the area did not have a synagogue. They were forced to meet for worship and prayer on the banks of the nearby river. One Sabbath, as this is happening, four strange men wander into their time of prayer and begin speaking of a new kingdom and a new king and a new fulfillment to all their hopes and teachings from the old scriptures. These four men are, 50 points each, Paul, Timothy, not Peter, good guess, minus 50. <laughs> Luke, yes, not Barnabas, but another of Paul's best buddies. Paul, Timothy, Luke, and, starts with an S, not Simon, Silas. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they walk into this worship service as their custom was to go to the synagogue, no synagogue, so they go to the river, which is the backup plan, and here they find um, this really beautiful story, and I've got it back here, you can read along, or you can read it, I'm, I'm not going to read it, you can read it as I speak, but this is a story from Acts 16, which we looked at as we were studying Acts, and it was the Genesis, this, this encounter between these four Christian leaders and Lydia and the other women of Philippi worshipping at the river. That was the genesis of a long, meaningful, and deeply impactful friendship. Lydia was a very wealthy woman, a dealer in purple cloth, which was this magisterial, very fancy and expensive cloth. 
um, and her home was large enough to accommodate a large gathering of many people. It would serve as a home base of sorts for Paul to the next 15 years of ministry. Philippi, in a lot of ways, was Paul's home base. The body of believers would continue to grow and thrive across the socioeconomic spectrum. So you've got wealthy Lydia. She would be joined by the semi-privileged Philippian jailer. You might remember this story. This jailer had been in charge of Paul and Silas when they are imprisoned in the city of Philippi. It's also in, in chapter 16 of Acts. When an earthquake, a divine earthquake, opened all their cells, the jailer rushed out and assumed all the prisoners had escaped. He was in charge of the prisoners, so he was prepared to fall on his sword, commit suicide as an act of, of honor for his dishonorable act of letting the prisoners get away. And just as he's about to do that, Paul calls out and says, don't do it. We're all here. It's okay. So Paul stopped him. And in doing so, saved not just his life, but his soul. Because this jailer, who was fairly wealthy, was added to the believers. So there's Lydia, the jailer. They are on one end of the wealth spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum would be the uncared for, the sick, the widows, the, the orphans, the elderly, um, as well as slaves. Slaves, such as the little slave girl, also in chapter 16, who had been possessed by a demon and had make, made her owners filthy rich because this demon predicted the future for people. So it was good for the owners, but terrible for this little girl to be possessed like a demon. And so, uh, to be possessed by a demon, sorry. So when Paul finally exercised her, casting off the chains of demonic possession, she was free to join the Jesus worshipers. However, that was the event that made the whole city mad at Paul, and that's what ended up getting Paul in prison, where he met the jailer, saved the jailer, so it all worked out. Even though messy stuff happened, it worked out, as the jailer can attest. So, like all Christian congregations throughout the empire, the Philippian church was a diverse portrait of social life in Rome. Excuse me. And like many churches, the Philippian church body featured believers whose salvation in Jesus could be directly attributed right to Paul himself. Goes back right to Paul. Lydia, the first converts made by Paul and his companions. For the, the jailer and the slave girl, however, their salvation isn't just attributed to Paul. Their livelihood, their, their life, their freedom can be attributed to Paul. So they had this extra reason to be connected and thankful for Paul. Right? If you're the jailer, you're thankful to this guy for the rest of your life. Right? That he didn't just flee when he could have. He saved your life. If you're this little slave girl and you're free from this demonic possession, you're going to be attached to Paul the rest of your life. Well, as with all friendships, there was a lot of reciprocation. The believers in Philippi never forgot their debt, and by the way, Paul would never call it a debt. Um, but they, I think, saw all that Paul had done for them, and, and they, they stayed in close contact with the apostle for all of his, the rest of his life. Here's Paul's writing. Um, he's writing to the Greek city of Corinth. This is, I think, 2 Corinthians. Yes, 2 Corinthians 8. And he's talking about his friends in the Philippian church to the north. And he writes these celebratory words. We want you, so the Corinthian church, who was experiencing a lot of problems, a lot of conflict. He says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The chief, chief among the Macedonian churches are the Philippians and the Thessalonians. So we want you to know about these Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And that's a formula that's a great formula for the book of Philippians. Poverty and pain 
plus joy equals generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So Paul, writing to this broken, hurting, conflicted church, holds up the Philippian church as an example of a really healthy, vibrant church. Despite their poverty, despite their oppression, they are doing great, great things for the kingdom. And that goes back to to Paul's first act of, of kindness among them. Sounds a lot like one friend bragging about another friend to a third friend, which is exactly what this is. Wherever Paul went throughout the Roman Empire, no matter what struggles or successes, he could always count on the support of the the church in Philippi, which was not true of the other churches. Ephesus was like a home base for him in in a lot of ways. He went back there and got news went through Ephesus a lot, but Philippi was where his support, he could always count on support for Philippi. A, A bunch of slaves and impoverished, broken people scrapping together their what money they can, sending it to Rome when he's in prison. Can you imagine what an encouragement that would be? You're, you've been in prison for two years, totally unjustly, for four years actually at this point. And here comes uh, this gift f- from, from these people who you haven't even seen in person for years and years. But they're thinking of you because they know what you've done for them. How much, that would be so encouraging. This Philippian church was an example for all the other churches. And I think that friendship is really the foundation for the why and what of Paul's writing. One more thing before we move on. The question of who can be interpreted as who else is mentioned in this letter. There's some characters we need to explain. There's several people mentioned specifically in the letter, or as Paul himself writes in 4.3, mentioned in the book of life, which is really cool. Um, chief among these people are, are Epaphroditus and Timothy. So this gift I mentioned that the Philippians brought was brought by Epaphroditus. There's two whole paragraphs, 12 verses dedicated to, to um, Paul just praising these two men, Epaphroditus and Timothy. While Paul sits in house arrest, he longs to be with his beloved Philippians, or at least hear news from them. But that doesn't mean he's not in contact with his friends there. Epaphroditus had recently delivered the sizable gift to the apostle on behalf of the believers in Philippi, but then he became frightfully ill and couldn't return right away. And Paul knew that the Philippians would be worried about Epaphroditus, so he sends Epaphroditus back to them. So now that he's recovered, he sends him back and says, welcome him as a hero. Epaphroditus, he's a hero. Meanwhile, Paul remains in house arrest, and until he's freed, he declares that he's sending to them Timothy, who was there on the first Riverside Sabbath meeting way back um, some, quick math, 13 years earlier. His purposes for sending our friend Timothy will be explored soon in this sermon. But again, Paul is just really effusive with his praise. He just can't say enough good about this young pastor. In fact, he says, there is no one like Timothy. And he sets the young pastor up as a paragon of virtue, an example to be followed by all Christians in Philippi and beyond. Be like Timothy, basically, is what Paul says. Those are two guys we'll meet. Paul also briefly mentions in chapter 4 a man named Clement, who might even be the jailer rescued by Paul and Silas in Acts 16, maybe, as well as an unnamed true companion who may be Lydia, who was a leader of this church congregation. But the two most intriguing new names in the book are two women named Euodia and Syntyche. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. And Euodia and Syntyche are apparently not seeing eye to eye. 
Philippi and Macedonia as a whole had a well-known reputation of allowing women more power and authority than any other place in the empire. So Lydia was a leader. That wouldn't have happened in a lot of places in the empire. We already know about Lydia as a hero. She's this titanic figure in establishing the church in Philippi. But as with men in power, women are not impervious to clashes of belief and personality either. We never get the impression that it's anything too serious or else Paul would have cracked down on it hard. Uh, <clears throat> but even the smallest argument can fester and create divisions and disunity. So Paul's being proactive and addressing these two beloved women and asking them to put aside their selfish arguments and embrace the greater purpose. The greater purpose is this, being of the same mind in the Lord in order to make Jesus' glory known to those around them. That's why they're mentioned, because they are breaking unity. But that unity is crucial. He wants them to be of the same mind in the Lord in order to make Jesus' glory known to those around them. And really, that is a great transition for the next two W questions, the last two. Why and what? As in, why did Paul write this book and what is the content of the book? And those things that I just mentioned, that unity, being of the same mind in the Lord, making Jesus' glory known, those are big parts of it. Before we talk about those two important questions, why and what, I'd like to introduce you to a new friend of mine. He is a cookie jar shaped like a llama. He is a Christmas gift from my great friend, Matthew Morris. This llama is fabulous. Angie saw it and said, that's very big. <laughs> I saw it and said, this is very amazing. Um, this llama is fabulous. I was having trouble thinking of a name for him until I remember that two weeks ago, another dear friend of mine who happens to be Matthew's wife, Danielle, sent me a Facebook post listing, helpfully listing names of llamas, names you can give to a llama, probably anticipating me getting this llama gift. I don't know. But um, on that post, there are many helpful suggestions. So please say hello to Barack Olama. <laughs> that was my favorite of them. So boo. How could you boo Barack Olama? Barack Olama was delivered to me this week at snow camp by another great friend I mentioned before, Ryan McCullough who in this case was like Epaphroditus, shuttling gifts between Christian friends. Now, when a friend gives you an incredibly random and unforeseen gift, like a porcelain, porcelain llama cookie jar named Barack Llama, you don't merely put it aside with a shrug. So I sent Matthew a text message, and it said, and I quote, I heart, 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 alpaca, question mark, llamas, cookie jars, three exclamation marks. That's right, four heart emojis and three exclamation marks. That's about as showy as I ever get with a text message, by the way. But Barack Obama was worthy of such gushing. You sure have. You've gotten heart text messages. Not four in a row, that's true. But Well, anyway, the reason I, I, I introduce you to Barack Obama and talk about heart emojis is because... The book of Philippians is essentially a text message with four heart emojis and three exclamation marks sent from one Christian friend to another. Other letters of Paul are written to combat serious issues. Corinthians and Galatians, they're written to combat heresy and division in the church. Some books are written to establish firm theological thinking. Romans, Ephesians, Colossians fit in that category. Or to give much-needed instruction to less mature pastors who need encouragement, like Timothy and Titus. But Philippians is unique and that it's seeped not in Paul's authority, as all those other books are, but in friendship. All those other books, are con Paul is super concerned with establishing his authority, whether it's quoting his all the things that make him authoritative, or whether it's treating 
like Timothy and Titus, like little brothers, like a father talking to sons. Paul is the authority figure in those other books, but not in this book. Paul never makes claims of authority in this book. He is equal with the Philippians. He is their friend. He doesn't invoke his apostolic authority. He doesn't lay out the theological foundations for the gospel because they know those foundations already and are strong in those foundations. He doesn't give harsh rebukes or demands. Even when he talks to Euodia and Syntyche, it's very patient, not like in other books. This letter takes the form of a classical Greek or Roman friendship letter, sort of like an ancient Christmas card. That's what Philippians is. It's like an ancient Christmas card. Prayers of thanksgiving, presenting a personal update, showing an interest in the affairs of his friends he's collaborating with, demonstrating mutual um, beneficence, beneficial mutually. It's all there. All of this, it's a friendly letter, unlike any other Paul letters except 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is the only other one that's kind of like this. So that makes Philippians really unique. It's like me texting Matthew. Just, this is great. Thank you so much. That's what Paul's doing with Philippians. It's filled with the language of genuine appreciation and affection, care and thanksgiving from one friend to another group of friends. Near the very end, since this letter, in those days they didn't get photocopy the letter and distribute it to people. What they did was they got everybody in one place, usually a synagogue or something, and read it out loud. And so Paul saves his biggest thank you for the very end so that they would leave having heard that still fresh in their minds. Paul showers the Philippians with thanks for the enormous and enormously sacrificial financial gift that Epaphroditus had delivered to him. He saves that for the very end. We would start with that. Like, thanks so much for the gift. Here's some stuff that's going on. Paul ends with it, so it's the last thing they hear ringing in their ears before they leave. Um, and you would send that, you'd send a letter too, if, if you were unjustly imprisoned and your friends 1,300 kilometers away sent you a surprise gift along with words of encouragement and prayers for strength. But this letter is more than just a thank you note. Despite the gentle and affectionate side of Paul that we see in this writing, Philippians contains some hard-hitting purposes. The theme of suffering rises to the forefront in Philippians as it did throughout Luke and Acts, which makes sense because Paul is writing this letter while literally chained to a symbol of Roman oppression. Suffering is very much on his mind. Um, He's under arrest for unjust reasons. And to make matters worse, as he says in chapter 1, some men are causing trouble for Paul by going around and preaching Christ for their own uh, gain. Paul says that's fine as long as Christ is proclaimed, but they're doing it to get at Paul. So he's got a lot of problems. Moreover, the local churches in Philippi are enduring themselves, they are themselves enduring three great struggles. First, oppression from their neighbors of, of some sort. Second, severe poverty. We know that from the Second Corinthians passage. And some degree of inner turmoil, which we know from the, the battle between those two clashing women. The source of the oppression being endured by the Philippian church is a bit of a mystery. I, I wonder if the persecution was a holdover from when Paul was thrown in prison. Some things can be forgiven, but when, in, when, you, when you affect a man's wallet, often they are very slow to forgive. And so that's what happened in Philippi. And so maybe there's some holdover from that. Those people are still remembering how Paul damaged their financial gains. So maybe that's why where the oppression to the Christians is coming from. But a better answer might go back to, remember I mentioned when, when Philippi was converted to a Roman city and was conquered by Octavius, that um, the, the emperor was worshipped as a god in that city. Well, Emperor Nero, 
was ruling at the time that this letter was written, was known throughout the empire, and particularly in emperor-worshipping Philippi, by the Greek titles of Kyrios and Soter. Anybody want to guess what Kyrios and Soter translates to in English? Translates to Lord and Savior. In Philippi, where he's worshipped as a god, Nero would have been labeled Lord and Savior. And so every time you read in the Bible those words, Lord and Savior, that is, they are undermining the entire political system of the day. That is, they are being very cheeky when they do that, but in a way that glorifies our actual Lord and Savior. Do you think those are titles that the Christians of Philippi would, would readily acclaim to Nero, Lord and Savior? Obviously not. Obviously not. And how do you think the Nero-worshipping pagans responded to hearing these Jesus people call a shamed, crucified carpenter the titles that they believe are deserved only by the emperor? Jesus is just some guy who was crucified to them. Crucifixion was the lowest form of death. They saved that for the worst criminals, the most shameful people. And they're calling that guy Lord and Savior? This Jesus guy? This nobody? How dare they? So you can imagine that these people who, who worship the emperor as Lord and Savior would not like hearing the Christians say that about Jesus. Just like we don't like hearing other people say anybody other than Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's the same for them. So probably a lot of the oppression and persecution came from that. Lydia, the jailer, the slave girl, and the rest of the church in Philippi, they were suffering, as was Paul. And yet, in the midst of all that pain, Philippians is the most joyful book in the New Testament. Some version of the word joy is used 16 times in in four chapters. Why? Because in all of this, especially the suffering, the gospel is being advanced, and Christ is being glorified. That's why, despite all this pain, all this suffering, a persecution, and oppression, there's so much joy in the book of Acts. Book of Acts. Book of Philippians. Got to get that out of my head. No book of Paul mentions either the gospel or the name of Christ as often, relatively speaking, as the book of Philippians. And while Paul doesn't offer many elaborate or elegant descriptions of theology about Jesus or about the gospel, other than the most famous passage of the book that we'll look at in a few weeks, other there's not much of Paul's theological expounding on what Jesus, who Jesus is and what the gospel is, which is weird for Paul. But despite that, Christ is present in every word that he writes. Paul celebrates his chains because Christ is being made known, even among the Praetorian guards. And he encourages the Philippian church to rejoice for the same manifestation of Christ, excuse me, in their own suffering. For Paul, for us, life only has purpose when God is being glorified through Jesus. That is the ultimate goal. I say that again and again. I don't know how much you believe that, but that's what I believe, that the ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God through Jesus. This is why Paul wants to stamp out the disunity that's creeping in, because that doesn't bring glory to, to, it dilutes their ability to bring glory to Jesus, to God. It's also why the book has such a strong focus on eschatology. Is that a word that you're familiar with? Eschatology? It's kind of a Bible nerd word. Eschatology is a, a branch of theology dealing with Jesus' return. So the end times, judgment, um, his triumphant return is eschatology. Try to remember that because I'm going to say that word a lot of times. And the eschaton is the time of Christ's arrival. Well, the Philippians will be more willing and able to endure persecution if they know that in the end, God will judge them as worthy for their faithfulness. So they're enduring all the suffering. No wonder Paul talks about eschatology, the end times to come, the coming judgment, favorable judgment. We don't talk much about eschatology in modern Canada because life is good and comfortable for us. 
we don't always need to hope for something to come. We have everything we need most of the time right here. And so we're really bad at, at being eschatological, looking forward to the end times. But a Christian in Macedonia under Nero would be desperately clinging to the hope of God's gracious judgment after death because death is right at their door all the time. And they would be more firmly dedicated to bringing their Lord the glory he deserves, knowing he will return in power soon. And so for Paul and his friends in Philippi and for his spiritual descendants in Clyde, Alberta, it's all about bringing God the glory that he deserves now and in the future. Since the Philippians are doing such an excellent job of glorifying God, including through their financial support of the apostle himself, Paul and the Philippians both had many reasons to rejoice. And so it's a book of rejoicing. This letter of friendship joyfully celebrates that progress. And so, in conclusion, I know this is going long, these are the major themes of the book that we will see over and over again. They are the answers to the what and why questions. First, centrality of Christ. In fact, I titled this sermon, which is kind of the title for the whole book of Philippians, To Live is Christ. To live is Christ. That's what all of Philippians is about. Everything we do is based on Jesus. It is sourced by Jesus. He is our purpose. He is our prize. Everything is about Jesus in this book and in our life 2,000 years after the book was written. Second of all, so first the centrality of Christ. Second of all is advancing the gospel at all costs. And there were costs. Paul is writing in chains. Those chains are a result of him advancing the gospel. But unity, the reason Paul talks about unity so much is because unity is the only way we'll ever advance the gospel. If we are fractured and broken and infighting, we A, won't have the the strength and ability to go out and, and wrestle with real issues in the world. And B, the world will see our brokenness and say, why do I want to be a part of that? So Paul over and over says, please be unified. Be of one heart and mind. Why? To advance the gospel. Suffering advances the gospel, comes up over and over. And Paul wants to take this gospel into the fallen world around them. So the advancement of the gospel for the glory of Christ is is super important in Philippians. Third, placing our hope in eschatology, Jesus' return. And finally, the importance of righteous living, which is all three of the ones above it. Righteous living is found in Christ, sourced in Christ. Righteous living helps advance the gospel. And righteous living is the key to us looking forward to the eschaton. We shouldn't look forward to the coming judgment if we are not righteous. So that, these four things, that is what we can expect to grow. Those are the areas we can expect to grow in as we study Philippians. Those are the keys to a lot of the W questions for us. There's one more quick W question I want to share. Why this book specifically? Why did I choose Philippians? I wanted to do a a prison epistle since we ended off Acts with Paul in prison. So I could have done Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Why did I choose Philippians? I've already said it's one of my all-time favorites, but that's not why. We just read Acts, which talks plenty about the centrality of Christ, about advancing the gospel, about hope despite suffering. Acts talks about all these things. So why this book in particular? Why Philippians? To answer that question, I want to paraphrase a gentleman named Terry Muck, which is, I think, a hilarious last name. Sorry, Terry. He's never going to listen to this, but uh, I think that's hilarious, Terry Muck. But he wrote the introduction to one of the commentaries that I read, and he writes this. Philippians is mostly written to church people who are doing pretty well. It is not a letter from a parent to a prodigal, but a letter to a, to that delightful child who is always obeyed and, although by no means perfect, is at least giving the straight and narrow path a try. 
Paul doesn't have to rail against heresy in the church, as he does in some other letters, and he doesn't try to write a mini-systematic theology. He is writing to people he likes, people who have been with him for the long haul. The message of Philippians, therefore, is that maintenance of the healthy is as crucial as surgery on the ill. I see a lot of Clyde Christian Bible Church in that paragraph. I see a lot of you. We all still have a lot of learning and growing to do, but I look out here and I see a firm foundation. We are not starting from ground zero, as Romans is. We do not have to wrestle necessarily a ton with who Christ is, as Colossians does. We don't need to harp on unity. It needs to. It can always be encouraged, unity. But Ephesians is all about unity, pretty much the whole purpose of the book. So I chose Philippians because you are already as strong as you are. We've got a strong foundation already built. Philippians is to be read and explored by friends who are equals, who are co-adventurers, and that's what we are. We are co-sojourners in this path. Philippians is a llama cookie jar containing great treasure for those who are willing to open it. But beware, those treasures take work and effort and sacrifice. Philippians is a joyful, celebratory book, but it's filled with deeply convicting lessons. It's like, reading Philippians is like getting brutal honesty from your best friend. It, it is joyful, it is celebratory, but hopefully it will kick you in the butt a little, kick me in the butt. We all need that. We're doing well. We're healthy. Firm foundation, that's great. But we can always strive for something more. When we are finished Philippians, whether that's in six weeks or six months or, God forbid, six years, don't rule it out, we will all be closer in unity to each other, I believe and pray, as well as closer to our Lord Jesus, who reigns today and will one day return in grace, power, and truth. That is my hope. That is my prayer as we study Philippians. To joyfully follow Barack Obama deeper into this great kingdom as brothers and sisters for his glory. And that is the last time I will mention my ceramic llama cookie jar. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this journey in Philippians, I pray that all the beautiful lessons of Philippians would sink deep into us, that we would, we would be joyful, that we would be unified, that we would be of one heart and mind, that we would strive towards you, that we would run this race with righteous living, putting you at the center of all things. Thank you for this group of brothers and sisters that we get to journey together, that we get to move closer to you, Jesus, as as a body with a firm foundation ready to be challenged for something greater. I pray that you would challenge us, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us and, and make us stronger, make us more unified, make us more filled of love for you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Did you look in your Bible? Did you look? Yeah, okay. I'll allow it because that's crafty. Philippians is a llama cookie jar containing great treasure for those who are willing to open it. How could you boo Barack Obama?